What's up, what's up, what's up, and welcome to the single player experience, the perfect place for single player gamers to find out about good single player games to play. I'm your host, Sebastian Malden, and in this episode, we're mixing things up and we're doing things a little bit different because today we're walking on the wild side and talking about all things Tarzan. I'm so excited about this episode because joining me today is Scott Tracy Griffin. Tracy is a renowned author and he's the world's most leading expert in all things Tarzan. In this episode, we're going to talk about what Tarzan would be like as a modern day video game. We're going to talk about Tarzan's current state of the IP and Tracy is going to give some good advice to writers who want to be a leading expert in any subject. We got all this and more on this episode of the Single Player Experience. DJ, start the intro, man. This is the Single Player Experience, the podcast that helps single player gamers manage their video game backlog. I'm your host Sebastian Malden and my main quest is to help you manage your ever-growing video game backlog by letting you know which single player games are worth your time and money so that you can have the best single player experience. Now without further ado, let's start the show. DJ, cut the beat. Ladies and gentlemen, like I said in the intro of the episode, we have a very special guest with us today. He has done a lot of things, but you'll know him as being an expert in all things Tarzan. We'll get into all of his accolades as the show goes on, but he is the authority on Tarzan, and I'm excited to have him on the show today. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Scott Tracy Griffin. Scott, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Man, thank you so much for being on the show today. Scott, before we begin, can you give some f- facts about yourself to let people get to know you a little bit? Okay. I grew up in Starkville, Mississippi, which was a small town when I was growing up here years ago. And uh, was a an outdoor kid, ran around a lot outside and played outside and was also a bookworm rains a lot in Mississippi, so that gives us plenty of time to read. Grew up in Starkville, went to school at Millsaps College, a small private liberal arts college in Jackson, Mississippi. Tried on several different majors for sign size, wound up with a degree in sociology. Then as soon as I graduated, I headed out to Los Angeles to pursue a career in entertainment and have done a lot of things in the entertainment field over the years, from theater and acting and things like that to writing. I've been writing for about 30 years now professionally. I started out writing for the movie magazines like Cine Fantastique and Femme Fatales and Film Facts, covering the movie beat for them. My area of interest, uh, as you indicated, is the author Edgar Rice Burroughs and his creations like Tarzan of the Apes and John Carter of Mars. This has been a passion since childhood. I discovered Edgar Rice Burroughs when I was nine years old. I went into the bookstore and they had a big display of books with covers by Neil Adams. And uh, I must have sat, stood there for an hour looking at every book and reading the back cover and reading the inside cover and trying to decide. And I decided to start my journey with Tarzan of the Apes, the very first book by Edgar Rice Burroughs. And it didn't take long before, I wasn't very far into the novel, but before I thought, hey, this guy can really tell a story. In the South, we come from a very much a storytelling tradition, an oral tradition. Eudora Welty, William Faulkner, Tennessee Williams. These are all Mississippi mm-hmm. people, no, not to mention Elvis Presley. So the South is, and especially Mississippi, has been known for the arts and storytelling. Yeah, for sure. Growing up, you hear all these tales from your grandparents about their childhood and great-grandparents. 
So I was really fascinated with who was this man that told this story and how did he tell it? And I saw the little bio that he had died some years before. And, and by the time I was 12, I had gotten this huge biography of Edgar Rice Burroughs called Edgar Rice Burroughs, The Man Who Created Tarzan. And it's about 900 pages long. It's enormous. And the author, Erwin Porges, was given a, a decade to go into the files of, of Edgar Rice Burroughs. His family gave him, gave Porges full reign to just dive into the files. And Burroughs was a bit of a pack rat. He kept everything, laundry lists, grocery lists, correspondence. So <laughs> we really have a really complete idea and view of this man, not only professionally, but personally, who he was and his creative process. So when you were first seeing yourself to his writings and such, what really stood out to you? What made you fall in love with his, like the way he writes? The adventure, the storytelling, the cliffhanger endings. It, he wrote page turners. You've got to turn that page to see what happened. And they're very colorful, whether it's the Tarzan. And people think of Tarzan, they think of Johnny Weissmuller and the Treehouse and the Chimp. You get into the novels and there was definitely a fantasy element, a science fiction element. He had all these different lost races and tribes and, and things he encountered, dinosaurs in deepest Africa. Bros, of course, wrote the John Carter of Mars series of 11 books. Those are fascinating and springboard for everything that came after Flash Gordon, Star Wars, Avatar. All of these properties were inspired by Edgar Rice Burroughs and his work. So that's the main thing is he just grabs you, I think. He's a page turner, his writing. So I know you're an expert in all things Tarzan, but is there another like IP of his that really stands out to you as well? Is it John Carter of Mars? Yeah, I love John Carter. I love all of his stuff. I love his sci-fi fantasy. I love Tarzan. I actually like the world of Mars. That's really my favorite world. The moon stuff. He wrote a trilogy called The Moon Maid. That's really evocative and fascinating. One reason I got steered toward Tarzan is there have been so many Tarzan movies, 52 authorized Tarzan films. Tarzan just really took off in 1912 when he wrote it. <clears throat> and so that's sort of where I've had two books, Tarzan Centennial Celebration, which was about Tarzan in general, the Tarzan phenomenon, the 100-year anniversary in 2012. And then I wrote Tarzan on film, which was about the 52 authorized films and seven TV series. Probably 90 to 95% of everything we see in society that has to do with Edgar Rice Burroughs is Tarzan. But I love his other stuff equally. I've probably read everything he's had published at least a dozen times each and all the bios and bibliographies. People keep coming back to Tarzan because he was just a touchstone myth that really took off commercially. But I think Burroughs' genius was a cross thing. He wrote Westerns, he wrote two excellent novel, novels about the Apache Wars from the perspective of the, of the Apache, which was groundbreaking at the time. Before, later on, when the 1950s, 60s, 70s, we started having movies that were Westerns that were what they would call revisionist, but they actually told the story from the perspective of the Native Americans. So he was writing about this in the 1930s. And yeah, just his whole body of work I'm in love with. So is there like a Tarzan adaptation that really stands out to you more so than all the others? That's a good question. I think the first half of Greystoke got it, the part in the jungle, because Robert Town, who had been, he was nominated for three Oscars in a row, three Academy Awards for writing, for Shampoo in Chinatown. And uh, he sat down and he tried to put, adapt the novel faithfully to the screen. And he wrote the jungle section and he was supposed to direct. It was going to be his directorial debut. He lost the movie, lost control of the movie, and it was taken from him and given to Hugh Hudson. And Hugh Hudson went in a different direction. He had done Chariots of Fire and put the Edwardian England's in it with his writer, 
so it really veered off in a different direction. But I think the jungle sequence of Greystoke is great. It really doesn't harken back to Edgar Rice Burroughs. It, it has the spirit and the ferality and the savagery. The first two Johnny Weissmuller films, Tarzan the Ape Man and Tarzan and His Mate, MGM did those, and, and they were very big budget, very big deal. MGM put a lot of resources into that. And then there were two Gordon Scott films, the last two Gordon Scott films, called Tarzan's Greatest Adventure and Tarzan the Magnificent, where you had this sort of savage, feral Tarzan hunting down a bands of outlaws in Africa. And uh, so those are the ones that I really recommend to people if they want to see at least uh, the spirit of Edgar Rice Burroughs on screen. Of course, readers of Edgar Rice Burroughs will tell you none of his works have ever been done justice. And that's a bit of, there's, <laughs> that's a source of hot debate with the John Carter movie. Some Burroughs fans hate it and feel like he got it all wrong. Some have mixed feelings and some love it. I guess I would fall into the mixed feelings. I, I think Andrew Stanton absolutely got some things right. The Tharks, the Hatchery, the Green Men, that was all just like the novel. And it was really great. But he did his plotline veered from the novels. And I think the Disney's Tarzan, it's wonderful. It, again, it's not really based on the novel. It has that spirit and just for to have someone take the mythos seriously and deliver quality entertainment. I'm happy anytime someone takes it seriously and delivers quality entertainment. I thought The Legend of Tarzan with Skarsgård and Margot Robbie, that was, again, we saw glimpses of the Tarzan from the books, but he's, the literary Tarzan is a lot different than the film Tarzan. I, uh, I think the last like real, like major film adaptation was Legend of Tarzan with uh, Margot Robbie and Samuel Jackson. Yep, 2016. Why has there been such a lull in the IP, do you, th do you think? That's a good question. In from 1918 to 1968, a span of 51 years, there were 40 Tarzan movies. So there was a Tarzan movie every 14, 16 months. Yeah, for sure. Year. And then it just hit a dry spell. And I think there were several factors. One thing, after... Cy Weintraub, he was the producer. He produced seven movies in the Ron Ely Tarzan series. And the Ron Ely series was, I really like it. He mm -hmm. did a lot of his own stunts. He put himself in great peril with these animals. He was wrestling and suffered a lot of injuries. They finally had to shut the series down, not because of ratings, but because of insurance costs were skyrocketing. And the producer was afraid Ron was going to kill himself fighting all these animals and doing all these stunts. <laughs> but that was, there was a retrenchment and a producer named Stan Cantor, obtain the rights. And he was friends with Robert Town and they took their time. And unfortunately, Greystoke went into development hell. It took 14 years to get that movie on screen. And then they were going to do Greystoke too. That took 14 years. That was the Casper Van Dien movie, Tarzan and the Lost City. Then the Legend of Tarzan with Skarsgård, that took 14 years. They started Warner Brothers obtained the rights around 2001, 2002. They did the Travis Fimmel series. That was eight episodes and that didn't take off. And so they just kept renewing the rights. So it's been plagued by development hell for one thing. I think another disadvantage is with things like Disney, Marvel, Star Wars, DC, mm -hmm. these monolithic corporate entities. And they have power. They have clout. They have resources. The Edgar Rice Bros Company is a small family-held company. And they're the ones in charge of getting Tarzan on screen. And so they've had some misfires. It's a small company. They're, they don't have a, a huge staff. And I think they're a little guy. It's a, a case of David facing Goliath of the Hollywood industry. And I think that's the case is the brand, the franchise doesn't have the clout that some of the bigger brands and franchises have, which is a shame because the content is there. The content is wonderful. And so much of his 
Burroughs output has never been truly visualized on screen. So there's tremendous potential there. How do you think people would react to see a, you mentioned earlier that you, that most like real Tarzan fanatics don't really feel like there's been a true adaptation. How do you think people like the mainstream people would react to seeing a true adaptation of Tarzan um, either in theaters or on a, as a TV show? If it was done well, I think it would find an audience. You know, that's the challenge is, you know, making sure that this producer that's telling you all these great and wonderful things he can do with your property actually has the chops to do it. I believe the company, they've had some low budget projects in the past, low budget TV and things that I think were with good intentions, but they just didn't turn out. So I, I think if you had the budget, you had the talent, the audience would be there. I think one thing that sort of has been a challenge in the past, I talk about the golden era from the 19 teens to, or the 1930s, at least to the 1960s, was the Johnny Weissmuller Tarsons, where just this huge cloud hanging over the film Tarsons is MGM and Johnny Weissman and Maureen O'Sullivan, they really made that property their own. And Burroughs just sold the Tarzan name and the character. He he forbid MGM from using any elements from the novels. He did not, he'd had, there'd been eight silent films. And Burroughs, every silent film was supposedly adapted from a novel and every one failed when, at least creatively, they did tremendous business commercially. But Burroughs felt like they were, were creative failures because they diverged from his novels so much. So when MGM came along for the first sound Tarzan film and started negotiating the rights in 1931, Burroughs said, you can take the character and hear the guidelines. There were certain guidelines that Tarzan has to be have this heroic stature. He can't be an antihero. He can't do villainous things or evil things. But he let them do their own thing, and they did it well. They created this mythos of Tarzan and Jane in a treehouse with a, an adopted kid named Boy and a chimp named Cheetah. And when TV became big in the 50s, those movies started just running around the clock on the weekends. So kids, new generations of kids grew up with them as the matinees, watching them with their family. So I think Johnny Weissmuller was for many years the elephant in the room. And that people, even now, when I'm on social media and I post stuff about Ron Ely, who was a respectable Tarzan in his own right, I get plenty of people saying Johnny Weissmuller was the only Tarzan. There is no Tarzan but Johnny. So I, th I think that's, you talk about public perception, that's what has to overcome. And as the Johnny Weissmuller movies, as time goes on and they're black and white and they don't think they have the popularity and audience that they once did. They're classics, certainly. I think maybe we can see this savage Tarzan. We could see a Tarzan in Pellucidar, the land of the Earth's core, which is a Burroughs theorized that the Earth was hollow, or he based these books on existing theories, pseudoscience theories of the turn of the century, that the Earth was hollow and that it was full of prehistoric lands and dinosaurs and so forth, and what Jules Verne did with Journey to the Center of the Earth. So I think it's possible the way in the entree may be animation, because I think there's a level of suspended reality. I was know, just about to suggest that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I think that's a perfect, ad, that would be perfect for that another adaptation of Tarzan, because like animation has come such a long way. Yes, I think it might be a potential to adapt the novels and give people a new flavor. And of course, there's still different dishes. That people, when I worked for the company, I worked for Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated for three years and talked to a variety of studios and studio executives and producers and sort of how do they come in and bring Tarzan to a new generation. And uh, Tarzan has always been adapted to his times. He's a reflection of the times. And the, yeah, I mentioned the two Gordon Scott movies, the 1959 and 1960. 
Tarzan the Magnificent and Tarzan, Tarzan's Greatest Adventures. If you watch those, they're basically Westerns. It's the lone man against the band of outlaws. And of course, Tarzan is compromised. They wound him and he's tracking them through the bush. He's one guy against four. It's very much taken with the sensibility of a Western. That's true. I've never thought of it like that. Yeah, yeah. And then Jock Mahoney, he did Tarzan's Three Challenges and Tarzan Goes to India. Those were travelogues. The world was opening up in exotic lands. People could have start to afford to travel to these exotic lands. And so they took Tarzan there. And then you had the Mike Henry movies, Tarzan and the Valley of Gold and Tarzan and the Great River, where Tarzan was this James Bond style who jet, jetted in with his business suit and his attache case. And he and then he went to the zoo and broke the lion and the chimp out and <laughs> went into the jungle for adventures. But there was very definitely a James Bond spy angle to those pictures. So Tarzan has always been adapted to the times. And, uh, you know, what's interesting, too, is Tarzan was very much family-friendly entertainment. And the Tarzan mm-hmm. novels is very savage. He kills without compunction because he grew up raised by animals and that's was kill or be killed. Yeah, survival is fittest, so to speak. And I think now we're getting to a point where we can take our superheroes a little more seriously, take the myth and so forth, and that it doesn't have to be G-rated anymore. You can do PG-13 or hard PG-13 or even R-rated in the case of Deadpool. You yeah, you're not kidding. Lose an element of your audience with that. The PG probably has the broadest possible audience or PG-13. And once you go R or more serious, more adult, you lose a certain element of family audience and that's a certain amount of box office. But I do think that audiences would be a little more receptive to a more savage Tarzan when you've got people like Wolverine, Deadpool. We're seeing savage heroes on screen. Oh, yeah. Even then, Batman has become a lot more vicious. Yes, definitely. And I think that's like the that's the closest modern day comparison that I can think of besides James Bond is Batman now is more like adults, not necessarily he's not necessarily an adult character like Deadpool, but he is closer to that marker than he was like when he was first created and when he was first introduced to the public and his yes. TV debut. And Tarzan could be something very similar to that. Yes. And going back to the John Carter series, very violent. Mars was a very martial society. And I don't know if you noticed if you saw John Carter, but I think it was deliberate that Andrew Stanton cast people from the miniseries Rome. He cast some of the actors probably because they were used to that sort of costume drama. And this, the society on Mars is very similar to Rome. Not just the wardrobe, but the battles, the fights, the war. It was a very martial series, very martial plan, very violent. John Carter lopping off heads and getting um, into battle. And uh, so Mars is another one that, that could be taken very seriously and show violence and the effects of violence, just as you said, Batman and some of our other uh, superhero movies are. There's, I think, a lot of grist there with Edgar Rice Burroughs and his work that remains untapped both commercially and creatively. So question, do you think John Carter would make a better movie or TV show? Especially with the technology we have now. TV shows have come such a long way. You look at stuff like Lord of the Rings, Rings of Power, like Game of Thrones. Um, If you utilize that technology and that budget, John Carter could be an amazing TV show. I think most Burroughs fans are rooting for a streaming show. For John Carter, for Tarzan, anything that Burroughs did that had a longer cycle. There were seven novels, there were four Venus novels which add a sort of an element of humor that you've got enough content for a few seasons. I think Burroughs fans, yeah, they feel like the technology is there, the the visuals are there, the budget is there, that you could see streaming. Some of his standalone works, his solo novels, I think would work better as a feature film. 
but anything that's an ongoing continuing narrative, definitely streaming. And his works are very episodic because these stories a lot of times would be serialized over five or six pulp magazines. So he would give you two or three chapters and then this cliffhanger ending. And it's very similar to what we see with the TV series now that might have eight or 10 episodes. It breaks down very similar to what the pulp magazines were. And you could do a novel each season, for example. That makes complete sense. So I'm going to pivot for a second. What is it like being known as the Tarzan guy, like the expert in all things Tarzan? It's funny. I was always passionate about Edgar Rice Burroughs and his works, and I wanted to work with him down there. It's still my dream to get to to have a major role in getting this these uh, properties on the screen, either as feature films or television. That's the next great year for me because I've written comic strips. I've written nonfiction books I've written for the movie magazines. I've, I've covered the making of the movies and talked to producers, directors, writers. I've done that. And so the having a hand in bringing this to a new audience, a big audience, I feel is my next big goal. Yeah, when I moved out to LA, I had written some of my own original things. I thought that would be my entree. But I was a 24-year-old kid with a sheaf full of screenplays I'd written, homemade screenplays. I read all the books, Robert McKee's story structure and all the classic works on writing a screenplay. And I was a, a writer in high school and college. And I thought I would break in with my own stuff, but it just, people responded. One thing, one of my early uh, things that sort of set my career in motion, set the trajectory was back around 1993, I had written an article and I don't even remember which article it was, but Edgar Spurs' grandson read it. And he called me up and he said, hey, we had mutual friends, so we knew who each other were. But it was my first direct contact. He called up and said, oh, you know, I read what you wrote about my, my, about my grandfather. Come on down to the office. I want to give you a tour because they're still in the same offices that Edgar Rice Burroughs built in 1927, I believe it was. <clears throat> a little, little bungalow on Ventura Boulevard in Tarzana, California. Burroughs took his Tarzan money and bought a ranch and named it Tarzana and it's been developed into a town now, and the offices are there. So that's really what sort of Medgar Rasperos' grandson, and we were very simpatico. He was very passionate about the family legacy and had read all his father, grandfather's books and knew his grandfather. He was, I want to say, six or eight years old when Edgar Rasperos died. So he he had memories of Edgar Rasperos, and Burroughs had bequeathed him this legacy. And he was one that started referring me for documentaries and news programs, and he would get requests, and I think... I was the guy he felt comfortable with if he couldn't do it or didn't feel like doing it, passing it on and saying, talk to Tracy. I can't give him enough thanks for launching me in this direction. It's, it's Burroughs was always my passion in reading. And it's, it's always a revelation, even just talking to you, that people just come up, contact me and say, I want to talk about this. Or I just uh, shot this summer a French documentary. I worked on a South African docu-teleseries. So those will be coming out in the coming months. So yeah, it's always just gratifying and a, a little bit surprising to me when I'm approached from all these various uh, quarters, because I'm just a humble writer just pursuing my craft. I still research and read about it, Gerais and I read a lot more nonfiction than fiction. I'm currently going through a lot of the old newspaper archives in the Los Angeles area, digging up information on Burroughs that even his biographers missed. I'm just a guy who likes to read about Burroughs and learn about Burroughs. And if I, that I can share that with people, to me, is just the greatest thrill. So you mentioned that you had a lot of different scripts and different things that you worked, worked on for Tarzan. Is there like, and you have a dream of doing something on screen for him. What would be like the commer like the trailer pitch for that version of Tarzan? What would be different from with your adaptation? 
Oh, I can't give you my trade secrets. No, 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 not the trade secret. (laughs) Not Um, the trade secret, but give me some like a little character difference. I think that one thing, and I think two things. I think that it's an adventure show, Okay, but it needs to be character driven. Oh, okay. Everything on TV today is character driven. Yellowstone, this fabulous world of Yellowstone, but you watch it for the characters. You want to see what Rip is doing and... Women seem to love Rip and they love Beth too. They love that (laughs) couple. They love them individually. So that's the first thing is it would be character driven. Okay. And I think we've done the Tarzan, the single guy who's out. People starting in the post Maureen O'Sullivan era and the producer Cy Weintraub, they never knew what to do with Jane. They didn't want a Tarzan who was tied down. They didn't want a Tarzan who was domestic. And Burroughs, even at one point later in life, said, oh, I should never have made him domestic. I married him off too soon. Because Tarzan was meeting these exotic queens, La Vopar, and all these lost civilizations. And here he was tied down to his wife. I would lean into that and say, here's this guy. He lives this fantastic life, this these amazing adventures, but he's happily married and he's mm-hmm. faithful to his wife. And you bring the wife in and you have that marital dynamic. And uh, he had a son who was not boy. He had an actual, he and, his, he and Jane in the novels had a biological son who grew up and despite their best interests to raise him as a, you know, in London, as young Lord Greystoke, he ran away to Africa with an ape and recapitulated Tarzan's life. He grew up, he was 10 years old and he ran away to Africa and lived with this ape and had all these adventures. So I think that is entree is the domestic side, have it more character driven. And yes, amazing adventures but you care about the characters and their love story. So that's the angle I would come at it in a pitch is the family element, the love element, and even the Fast and Furious movies. Vin Diesel talks about, despite all the cars and everything, it's about family. Hmm. Repeat that in the fam family. He gets the people, you can only watch so many stunts before your attention wanders. You can only watch so much CGI. There's gotta be a human connection. There's gotta be a personal connection. There's gotta be an empathy with those characters. And it should be aspirational. You want to be those characters. You want to have Tarzan's adventures and you want to be married to a woman like Jane. Now, that makes complete sense. So I take it in your adaptation, in your pitch, you're not envisioning Vin Diesel for the role of Tarzan. I think most of Burr's characters, I would prefer an unknown. Someone who, who doesn't bring baggage. I gotcha. That makes sense. Because any huge movie star you're going to see, and that was interesting thing about Skarsgård and Robbie, was they were just starting to pop when Jerry Weintraub chose them. And I think it was right after they fi- they finished filming in 2014. The movie didn't come out until 2016. I think they had just wrapped filming when they both hit number one on the IMDb star meter. And so that was a case of he had picked these people who were just about to pop as stars and put them in the movie, and then they went on. So he got them be- before it got too late in their career. And of course, they're both, especially Margot Robbie, she's such a chameleon. Hmm. Does tries to seek out very diverse things. She doesn't always play the same character. And so that's another thing is, you know, if you have a, a, an actor who is good with character roles, who's more than just a movie star, who's not just uh, himself on screen. But yeah, generally, I would prefer someone for any of these Burroughs roles who's not that well-known, maybe has the acting chops, can do character stuff. And has, certainly has athletic credentials. I think that makes that's complete sense. 
as someone that uh, believe could run through the jungle and live in the jungle and so forth. So it's a tall order. Yeah, it really is. That's one reason why, you know, going with an unknown sort of opens that up a bit. Of course, an unknown is a gamble. That person, they may not deliver. You get them on set and uh, they may not have the charisma or the star power or the work ethic. And so it's tough. It's tough casting these iconic roles. And I think we go through that with, we've seen that with Batman. People were like, Michael Keaton is Batman? What the heck? <laughs> and then he did it. And same thing with Robert uh, Robert Pattinson. Pattinson. Yeah. People were like, the Twilight guy? And these guys step up and they own the role. So certainly you can cast, make sort of unconventional choices and it works. Yeah, it really does. I would be so fascinated to see what a modern day Tarzan like show looks like. Especially yeah. with CG, the CGI aspects of everything now. Would you heavily lean into that? Would you not quite lean into the CGI stuff? I'm like, how would the apes <clears throat> and, and chimps look in this show? That's such a fascinating like question mark in 2020 i guess 2024 or 2025 whenever that would come out i think still the big challenge no matter how advanced the cgi gets is the uncanny valley That's we true. talked about how people want to see characters they want to see mm -hmm. in their fantasy love interest on screen whether it's margot robbie alexander skarsgård gordon scott whoever you want to see someone you can identify with and a have that personal and, element with and uh, so that's the difficulty with cgi and the legend of tarzan had almost all cgi animals i believe there were a couple of goats in the native village that were real <laughs> you just because we've our awareness of animal welfare is what it is it's it would be very tough to put real animals in a movie again especially if you're talking about these species like lions gorillas elephants mm -hmm. it's a challenge because these animals these big charismatic megafauna they're under tremendous stress they're endangered there are only so many of them left on the planet and do you take one and put it through its paces on a movie set yeah and so definitely i think cgi for the animals the stunts there are things you can do with the stunts where you see tarzan from the back or the side where you don't necessarily have to worry about the uncanny valley as much i think as you alluded that with today's technology there's certainly a way you can seamlessly combine the stunts and so forth with actual characters actual charismatic actors and that was that's been something that's tough casper van Dien talked about it i had interviewed him and his movie's a nice little B-movie. If you haven't seen it, Tarzan and the Lost City. And Casper was very game Tarzan, very game Tarzan. He did what they asked. And Ron Ely talks about it, how you're running around in a loincloth. There's very little to cover up. It's hard to find a body double. You can, a guy who's walking around with clothes, you can do a lot more cheats with the camera. When a guy is almost naked and you're viewing him from various angles, it's hard to either find a body double. And it's, I think it's going to be hard to realistically do the cgi unless you use some camera trickery and it's very interesting the things you can get away with tricks you'll sometimes notice that scenes take place at dark or in the rain and i think one one famous example of that was the giant squid attack in Twenty Thousand leagues under the disney movie and they filmed it out on the tank on the lot in the bright sunlight and it looked like a giant rubber squid and like how do we what do we do so that's why they made the squid attack at night in a rainstorm, because you've got thrashing, you've got flashes of light, you've got, it heightens the danger and everything, but you can also cheat a lot. You can hide a lot. So I think that that's sense. another element of Tarzan is you've got the jungle, you've got inclement, various inclement weather, you've got shadows and leaves and things you can, there are things you could do creatively to cheat the stunts and still make it look 
incredible and impressive. So what villain would you pitch for your version, like your ideal, not necessarily your version of Tarzan, but like an ideal Tarzan villain that you would like to see in the next movie? He's a literary villain who has popped up now and again. I believe he was in Disney's Legend of Tarzan, and he was in a couple of the silent films called Nicholas Rockoff. Okay. And he was a, a Russian, and he had a, a sidekick named Pavich. They were in the second and third books, and Pavich came back in the fourth book. So they were the closest thing to ongoing nemesis Tarzan had. And what was interesting was the Tarzan novels took off so quickly. I have a friend who, he's American, but he studied abroad in Italy and uh, married an Italian woman. And I asked him one time, and he fluent, fluently, reads Italian fluently, I said, how does Burroughs read in Italian? And he said, it, it reads just like American, just like the English. Like It's a page turner. It's the adaptations he's read are thrilling and fascinating. And so that's what Burroughs found is his work translated. And so he was being translated into French and German and all these different languages. So he had to try and find villains. <laughs> he didn't want to demonize his overseas market. So that's why he had Russian villains because he had not been translated into Russia. And he had a Swedish <laughs> guy who was a poacher in one. And so he would always try to find these sort of obscure nationalities. And of course, eventually his books went worldwide and he atoned for that in World War II. He really demonized the Germans in a person fighting the Germans in British East Africa and German East Africa. And Tarzan was just savage, savage against the Germans. But then after the war, Burroughs repented and started creating German protagonists to make up a tone for his uh, his wartime sentiments. So that's why I'm digressing a bit. But yeah, Nicholas Rockoff, who was a Tsarist right at the end of, right before the communist revolution, Tarzan went up against uh, communist agents, Joseph Stalin's agents. Joseph Stalin in the books puts out a hit on Tarzan because Tarzan's breed of individuality doesn't mesh with the communist ideal. The communists wanted to take over Africa and have these satellite states and here was Tarzan on their way. Tarzan fought the Japanese in World War II. And in Sumatra, Burroughs wrote a novel about that. He was a war correspondent in the South Pacific. And Tarzan has had a lot of epic foes in the books, but I think people come back to the people who read the books, this, this Nicholas Rockoff, the sort of Russian double agent. He was a nasty character. He was blackmailing his own sister and doing whatever he could to shake people down for money and further the cause of uh, Mother Russia. So he was a, certainly a, an epic opponent for Tarzan. So let me ask you a question that's always, I've always wondered this over the years. Like I, my introduction to Tarzan was the Disney movie and then like some of the other movies, the 1998 movie as well. Mm -hmm. I, in the Disney movie, the antagonist was Clayton. Yes. Like Clayton was the antagonist, but like in, from my understanding, the, in like the books in Clayton, like his father. Like John Clayton? Okay. If you want to get in the Greystoke lineage, we can do a brief. Yeah, uh, just uh, briefly. This is just like a question I've always had about this series. I'm like, why did they name Clayton the bad guy in the Disney movie? But right. that's his like, father father's name was John Clayton. And that was oh, gotcha. name. John Clayton, Lord Greystoke. And uh, but he had a cousin. What happened was the Greystokes are marooned in Africa. And Tarzan is born and adopted by the apes and raised. And the Greystoke family believed that side of the family is dead. So Tarzan mm -hmm. had a first cousin named William Cecil Clayton, who was very effete and very civilized. He wasn't a bad guy, but he just you know, bursted him against Tarzan, his upbringing in London as Lord Greystoke. Okay. And interestingly enough, 
enough, he uh, he was on a ship with Jane when they got stranded in Africa. And that's when Tarzan met Jane. So his rival for Jane's affection was his first cousin. <laughs> what? Clayton. Mm-hmm. So Disney, I think, adopted the name from the cousin who was a rival and made a cousin um, who was not nearly so violent as the uh, the Disney villain. But yeah, it's a little tricky. And I always found that frustrating as someone from the books when they take a character's name from the books that doesn't really have anything to do with that character. I remember years ago, I was talking to a producer and he was talking about naming characters. And I was like, why would you name a character on screen from the book that has nothing to do with the character in the book? I said, people who have never read the book won't care. And people who have read the book are going to be frustrated and curious <laughs> so that you've injustice that character. I, I never understood why Hollywood does that sometimes is they'll name a character or create a new character, but take a name from the books that really has nothing to do with that character. So I can see why there was a little confusion about Clayton. That makes sense. So Tracy, I have to ask you, like, what is it like to have so much of your work being published in all these really cool places? Like, You've been published like on the Huffington Post, like Amazon, Hollywood, like MTV Geek, like so many cool places. What's that like? I have to give credit to Titan Books, my publisher. And Titan is very big now in the making of books. They do a lot of Star Wars books, any big A-plus list franchise. You're probably going to find an art book, a coffee table book by Titan about it. And so they were really breaking out when... uh, they published my book. That was 2012. I believe 2011, we actually I delivered the pitch. And I went through Agoris Burroughs, Inc. Titan had been wanting to do a book about Tarzan. And so I said, hey, I'm the guy to write the 100-year anniversary of Tarzan. I did a formal proposal, and the people at ERB Inc. got it in Titan's hands, and Titan decided I was the guy. So I really have to give credit to Titan. They really supported this book. They supported the franchise. They Their publicist was the one who set me up with all these outlets. And it was just like I was telling you in the 90s when my friend, grandson of Edgar Rice Bros would help me get me on documentaries and news programs and stuff. They really saw something in me and just helped me to take it to the next level. And I'm very grateful to the whole staff of Titan from Nick Landau, the president. He's a big, big kind of Edgar Rice Bros and his work in Tarzan and uh, Laura Price. She was my editor. I believe she's the creative director now. So they believed in me. They got my work out there. They got the publicity out there. And they asked me to do a second book. So I couldn't be more pleased. And I hope to do a third book with them someday. I've been on them about doing something about John Carter and Edgar Spurs other works. But they, I think they really want to wait to see a successful TV show, streaming show or movie or something to drive it. Because publishing today is publishing supports TV and film. And so it really, if you talk to a big publisher about a book, in my experience, they're going to ask you two things. What's an anniversary we can tie it to? Or is there a movie or TV show coming out we can tie it to? Because that's what <laughs> drives the awareness. You get tens of thousands of eyes on your books. You get tens of millions or even hundreds of millions of eyes on your film or TV shows. That's really what drives literary these days is the screen. That makes sense. So as a writer, what was it like holding your first public, like published book in your hands? Oh, it was amazingly gratifying. I can't describe the feeling because it took a while. I started writing in professionally in 1992-93 for the magazines. So it took about 19 years to get a book out. We did with Danton, we did a proposal 
when Disney's Tarzan was coming out to do a book and on the history of the Tarzan franchise and Disney, they were promoting their version of Tarzan. So they weren't too interested and that's understandable, but I didn't want to, when I'm not knocking university presses, I'm not knocking self-publishing. Those are great outlets, small press, certainly, but I wanted to wait until all the stars were aligned to get a major publisher to launch me to the next level as a writer, because I knew if I, I did university press or small press, you get typecast, you get literary world shunt you aside. So it was just amazingly gratifying that a long wait, 19 years and a lot of proposals and, and I'd sent my proposals out to a, agents and everything else. So it was a lot of work and a long wait, but they sent me a copy from the printer before, I guess it was a proof copy or whatever. So I got a copy several months before the book was over here. They're printed in China. For the second book, they didn't send me the proof. I don't know if they forgot me or they got one, but I didn't get a proof. So it was just a waiting game. And so I ordered my book for like a hundred copies to do signings and stuff. And I got the entire order. So that was when I cracked open the box. I got it on my birthday, May 10th, 2016 is when I received my copy. So that was a nice birthday <laughs> present. For the I bet second. that was wonderful, man. Yeah. And I hadn't, like I said, I had not seen a proof copy. So you're just crossing your fingers that it's going to be as nice as the first one, because there's no going back. When I saw <laughs> it, the thousands of copies had been printed and were in the random books warehouse. Yeah. It's just, uh, you can't describe the feeling. It's a lifelong room. It's just like seeing your name on screen on a movie or a TV show or something. Just a culmination of, of years of hard work and a lot of it anonymity. It's like I said, I still work. I still comb through library databases and so forth, looking for new elements or aspects of Edgar Rice Burroughs' life that haven't been published before. And as a writer, there's a, a lot of just laboring in obscurity until that book comes out or until your, your byline happens. So it's certainly that it makes it worthwhile. That makes sense. So let's, I want to transition into some advice that you can give like prospective writers. What advice would you tell someone who wants to write a book about something like a being to be an expert on something like you are on Tarzan? Read, read. You've got to be a good writer. You've got to be a good reader. You've got to be well-read. And I think a lot of it just comes out of your passion. If you're passionate about a subject, if you're passionate about a topic, and another piece of advice I got from the artist Joe DeVito, he's a painter. He's done a couple of Tarzan covers, also probably best known in the genre for his Doc Savage covers he does with Will Murray. And he's a sculptor. And Joe said the best advice he received in art school was finish what you started. Because as artists, we see shiny, pretty things and we want them and we pursue them. And there comes a time you may be 90% through with that manuscript when it gets hard and it stops being fun. You have this honeymoon phase when you're first learning and writing and it's fun, but then you run up against obstacles. Maybe it's fact checking. Maybe it's an interview you need and they won't give you get back to you. They're giving you the runaround. Or it can be any number of obstacles you run up against and it stops being fun and you don't want to do it. And you have to power through that. Power through, you have to finish your script, especially when you're starting out, especially when you're new. You have to prove to people you can write on a deadline. I remember when I was writing for the movie magazines, because I'm a pretty meticulous writer, I spent months on my books. I, I, it was a pretty quick turnaround for the actual writing. But the first one, I think, from the time I had a verbal, okay, we'll do this till we sign the contract was about 10 months. So I had 10 months to research and get my notes together. I'd been researching for 15 years or whatever, but I had 10 months to really get my notes together and get the book. And for the second book, I got a verbal, okay, 
it was almost two years before because they were syncing it up with the Legend of Tarzan movie. The book came out that summer. And uh, so I was getting it and I had a little bit of a luxury of time. But then when the actual writing comes, it comes at you fast and you've got to be able to perform under pressure. You've got to be able to perform under a deadline. And I remember when I was writing for the movie magazines, I had a pretty good, uh, the pretty good lead time on my articles. And then one day the editor called me and I guess a writer had dropped off a project and he wanted something on basically a two-day turnaround. So I had to do all the interviews. I had to call up the publicist and line up the interviews and they were all waiting, ready to go. But I had to to do all these interviews and craft that into a story because with nonfiction, it's storytelling. You have to talk about how the human interest, the, the human element, the character, that's always a good entryway into when you're talking about whether it's behind the scenes in a film or how a film comes, is the human element is, is what the people did. And I remember I had to do this magazine article on a two-day turnaround and it felt like such a victory to do it. And so that's another thing for young people is be aware that you may have the luxury of time when you're writing on spec, when you're doing your own passionate projects, but there's going to be a time when you have to deliver on a clock and you better be able to do That's part of being a professional is, is it's great to, to putter along, do your own fact checking and take your time and get it right. But when the editor says it needs to be there, and I always, I know I drove my editor crazy. I always pushed up against the deadlines because I was always just trying to make the book a little bit better, a little bit better. Because like I said, there's sometimes there's a fact you can't quite run that fact down. It's going to be an amazing, fascinating thing that nobody who's read about these Tarzan movies, and there have been a couple of really good Tarzan film books before, but I tried to find new stuff and you're trying to chase down this fact and you're telling that I got it, I got it, you know, I'm going to have it to you by midnight tonight. And you self-impose these deadlines and you have to make them. So that, that's another challenge, being able to deliver quality content on a deadline. That's really good advice. That is really good advice. We've reached a point in the show that I like to call the Pro Nerd Reports segment, Are You a Pro Nerd? It's where okay. I ask five questions, five random nerdy trivia questions, and we're going to see how many out of five you can get correct. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, so your first question comes in the world of movies, specifically Disney. Which film is credited for the for popularizing the word supercalifragilisticexpialidocious? Mary Poppins. You got it. You got the first one right. Okay, I'm one for five. All right, so in the world of Star Wars. The universe far away, the galaxy far away, I should say. In Star Wars, what is an ATV or ATT? Sorry. Oh, it's I can't tell you what the acronym stands for, but it's the big walkers. They call them the robotic things that look like an animal that walk. <laughs> we, I can take that. I can take that. Yeah, yeah. All the terrain fun. troop, maybe. All terrain. AT. You're close. Armored, armored assault tank. So you got it. It's just like okay. the acronym. Yeah, the acronym is a little tricky. Okay. And, the, and then also in the world of movies, what is the name in Men in Black of the signature memory eraser device? I did see those movies when they came out in the theater, but I have not revisited. <laughs> I can understand. It you got me there. There have been so many movies. What was it? A neuralizer. Neuralizer. Okay, I'll have to remember that. Yeah, that. Yeah. 
So, yeah, I mean, you've gotten two out of, like, two out of five correct so far, only missed one. Then you're doing pretty good. Okay. You're doing pretty good. So, your next question is in the realm of Lord of the Rings. What is the name of the creature who appears to drag the wizard Gandalf to his death with a flaming whip? That's wrong. No, no, but you're close. You try another guess. I think you're right there. Flaming. What is the name of the creature who appears to drag the wizard Gandalf to his death with a flaming whip? It's not Gollum. No. No. I give up. I'm not strong on the Tolkien, I will confess. <laughs> it's a Balrog. Balrog, it, okay. It, he was, I don't know if you, in the movies, he was like a big, big creature, almost looked very demonic. It was completely like he was on flame and like completely inflamed. Okay. And so I'm like, he was like, his whole body was made out of like fire, so to speak, like fire and smut. And mm -hmm. he would just w use like a whip to basically, yep. yeah, try, basically try to take down the fellowship. Yeah, but that I saw those in the theater many years ago. But that was geez, the first one was like years ago, wasn't it? Close to twenty years. Yeah, so. yeah, I believe so. Yeah. I think they just yeah, did their right. anniversary. A lot of movies between now and then. So hit me with the next one. <laughs> okay, this one's a little tough one. This which actor has played the role of Alfred uh, Alfred Pennyworth more than any other live action Batman? Pennyworth. Uh, Playing Alfred, the butler. Is it Michael Caine? No, but that's a very good guess. That's my Charles favorite. Charles Napier? What, what was the second guess? Charles Napier? No, but that was a good one too. Who was it? Michael Gow. Okay, I would not have gotten that. I like gun to the head. I wouldn't have either, but yeah. that was a really good guess because yeah. Michael Caine was my favorite. I did, yeah, I did Michael Caine. I thought he was great in the role. Yeah, but you got two right. You you said you want you didn't think you were gonna get any. You got two. That's pretty good showing. Thank you. Yeah, and see, that's the thing about being a specialist. I, I'm not a generalist. <laughs> I've never professed to be. I watch a lot of movies. I enjoy a lot of movies, but my field of study is very focused. So, going back to your field of study, what would, we mentioned that an animated version of Tarzan would be cool. Would you prefer it to be like animated, like rated G animated, or more like the adult, like animation centric stuff we're getting on Netflix nowadays? Because now it seems like we're getting a lot of more edgier, like more, uh, more centered towards adults, like animated properties as well. well. That's a good question. Did you ever see the 1970s? show Tarzan Lord of the Jungle. It was a filmation animation. Oh, I, I've never actually watched that to completion. Like, if I think I've seen like little bits and pieces. Yeah, if you get a chance, I don't know what platform it's on. I know the DVD is out there. If you get a chance to watch that, because filmation was really doing some great stuff in the 70s. Flash Gordon, Star Trek, Batman, they did a lot of great stuff. And that is considered probably by fans the closest, the most, the most authentic the novels is the filmation Tarzan and they had to meet the Saturday morning standards and practices Tarzan didn't carry a knife and uh, didn't want kids playing with knives things like that but there were various certain things Tarzan always would wrestle the hungry predator he would wrestle the lion or the black panther or the crocodile and then toss them aside and say get out of here punk and they would leave and so I have a tremendous affection for that and I would hate to exclude children from the experience I had. And that's the thing about 
for us. With Batman, you can have, I remember I was talking to a producer who had five, had, had, who was Iron Man in five different series at some point in the 80s. And we're talking about different platforms and different audiences. And so it would be great if you could have both for Burr. And like with Batman, you see the very dark, edgy Batman, but then you see the, the Lego Batman. And so it would be great if we could have both. I don't think the serious adult has been tried. I think there's tremendous potential there and tremendous market. I just hate to see kids excluded from that core visceral experience. I remember when Disney's Tarzan came out and I confess, I went and I got the Happy Meals to, to get the toys. And I remember I was in McDonald's and there were these little kids and it was like all ages and all races and all genders, boys and girls. And they were giving the Tarzan yell to each other across the McDonald's. And uh, one kid would yell it out and then across another kid would yell it out and then another kid. And that was just such to me a magical moment to see little kids giving the Tarzan yell. And just like I said, it cut across all cultures. It was, Tarzan was something everybody could enjoy. And that was just a special moment to me. And I would love to see that happening again, where kids can just have the uninhibited, disinhibited, running around, swinging on vines, jumping and being athletic and climbing jungle gyms. If they allow kids to climb jungle gyms anymore, the, all the uh, playground equipment has rubber pads under it now. Not when I was growing up, when you could get skinned good on a playground equipment. But that's what I would love to see is just children being able to buy into the myth and, and enjoy it, appreciate it. That makes complete sense. I like. I was thinking while you were like talking about like the adaptation you would like to see. This would Tarzan would make a pretty cool video game nowadays. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But we've come so far in like games and everything like that. I would be interested to see what a large budget studio would be able to do with the Tarzan IP. Yeah, and I again, I was an adult, but I got the, uh, the Disney Tarzan Game Boy, and uh, oh, I yeah. yeah. I used to play that and I wasn't very good because again, I was an adult, <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. But uh, yeah, I love that, the fact that you can, there's so many platforms that you can bring kids in and, and new audiences in and, and it's just ripe for that. We didn't see that. The uh, Legend of Tarzan, again, it was a big budget, A plus list movie, great cast, nice adventure, but it didn't have a lot of supporting products. Same thing with John Carter, there just wasn't supporting product. So that needs to happen is some studio needs to really invest in these properties and hit all platforms. And yeah, I think there's a tremendous amount of un, unmonetized and unrealized IP there that is just ripe for development. It'd be really cool to see what they do with that. Cause yeah, yeah. that would be really cool. Especially an open world where you can explore like all the jungles, you would have different like antagonists, maybe like some of the animals that he encounters that are like antagonists in the books, or maybe even like some of his true book and like foes as well. Yes. I think that'd be really cool. Tracy, it's been really fun talking to you before you go though. Where can the good people find you? My primary social media platform is Facebook. So you can either find me under Scott Tracy Griffin or both of my books have pages. Tarzan on Film is my most active page. That's my most recent book. I try to post new content weekly. I try to dig up facts about the Tarzan movies and the actors in them that maybe people either they haven't heard before or they haven't really thought about it to give them new perspective on these films and their place in history. And uh, ScottTracyGriffin.com uh, certainly is my website that people can learn a little bit more about me there. 
And where can they get the books? The books are available. The first book is out of print, actually. Tarzan Centennial Celebration. You can get it from second party sellers on Amazon. Okay. Tarzan on film is still in print. You can order it on Amazon or you can ask your favorite independent retailer. I support independent bookstores. You can ask them to order it for you. Sounds good. Sounds good. Tracy, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's really nice talking to you. Thank you, Sebastian. I've really enjoyed it. Tracy, I will. I got to have you back sooner rather than later. In the meantime, I will definitely keep you updated whenever this goes out. Thank you so much for being on the show again, and I will talk to you soon. Thanks, Sebastian. All right. Bye, Tracy. Bye. So that's a wrap for today's episode. I want to give a special shout out and thank you to Scott Tracy Griffin for joining me on this episode. I also want to let you know about the Single Player Experience Discord server. It's the perfect place for single player gamers to talk about the good single player games they've been playing lately and to get video game recommendations. Think of it kind of like a book club for single player gamers. The link to join will be in the description. Once you're in, feel free to share your video game backlog list, talk about the good games you've been playing, or give your feedback on the show. If you have a game that you think should be recommended or that you think I should talk about, let me know in the Single Player Experience Discord server. I'll see you there. Before we go, I just want to thank you so much for listening to today's episode. Stay safe, stay gaming, and I hope to catch you in the next one. Peace!